Well, good morning, everybody. Lord bless you. And Holy Spirit, we do welcome you here today. And Father God, we usher before your throne of mercy and grace this small band of your faithful servants. We ask your blessing here today, your healing on those who require healing, your touch of mercy to fall upon us, that the Holy Spirit would do his work in our midst today. We offer up this service unto you, Lord Jesus, that it would be a blessing and a worship to you. In Jesus' name. Good morning, everybody. You know, as I was reading the devotional before I came in here, I thought, wow, Lord, you really blessed my socks off. You know, a lot of us are going through difficult times now. Um, families are hit with health issues such as the COVID and just losses in their family. And here's a good word from the Lord. Living stones. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. I have a friend, well, Billy Graham had a friend who had lost his job, his fortune, his wife, and his home. But he tenaciously held on to his faith in Christ, the only thing he had left. And like Job in the Old Testament, he would not abandon God, no matter what happened. And yet, like Job, he couldn't help but wonder why. One day he stopped to watch some men doing some stonework on a huge church. One of them was chiseling a triangular piece of stone. What are you doing with that? The workman said, see that little opening way up near the spire? Well, I'm shaping this down here so it'll fit up there. Tears filled this man's eyes as he walked away, for it seemed that God had spoken through that workman to explain the ordeal through which he was passing. I am shaping you down here so you will fit up there. And the hope for today, I will focus on you, Lord. When I am left confused and wondering why, I will trust that there is a purpose in my pain and that my circumstances are causing me to look a little more like you. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more
Psalm 145, verses 14 through 21. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Would you stand with me as we recite the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. sound familiar. Yeah, good job. You may be seated. Our reading from the New Testament today is going to be an extremely familiar passage. And the interesting thing about the familiar is things can be so familiar that we feel like we know it. We got it down. But the familiar is often the place we need to go back and take to our souls once again. So out of chapter 13. I may be able to speak the languages of men and even of angels, 
But if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains. But if I have no love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have and even give up my body to be burned. But if I have no love, this does no good. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous, not conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up. And its faith, hope, and patience never fails. Love is eternal. There are inspired messages, but they are temporary. There are gifts of speaking in strange tongues, but they will never cease. There is knowledge, but it will pass away. For our gifts of knowledge and of inspired messages are only partial. But when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. Oh, what a day that will be. We have a reading together. Um, Ever-loving ever God, your son, was revealed that he might overcome evil. Grant that we who have this hope in us that when he appears in power and great glory to the honor of your name, one God now and forever, amen. Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you that you give all good things to us that you provide the heavens and the earth, and you feed the birds that are out there today. You take care of the coyotes that are running in the desert today, and so you take care of us. You provide everything that we have need of in each of our individual homes and to this church body. So now we thank you for all that you provide to this church body today, and we ask you to bless and magnify and multiply those things that come in today that we may care for all the needs that you um, bring into our hands. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, this morning we have a very exciting text. It's the uh, genealogy, <laughs> chapter 5. <laughs> and um, actually there's some really good stuff in it, but I'm going to take this, this opportunity. What we have not done, um, I want to answer the question, um, why does God allow wickedness and evil in the world? Um, and we've kind of danced around that over, you know, through, actually, I mean, you, you can't avoid that subject throughout this, uh, you know, throughout these first five chapters of Genesis, really the whole Bible, but, you know, but we've kind of danced around it, but I want to I really hone in on that issue. Uh, you know, what is evil? Why, why, you know, why didn't God do away with evil? Why do we have to have evil in the world? And so on. So, um, so we're going to take that opportunity and, um, and address that at the end. So, let's go to the text, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is the written account of Adam's line. When, Adam, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man, or Adam in, uh, in, in the, uh, actually that's in Turkish. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Okay? So, this then is the family line. We talked about um, the family line or the lineage of Canaan. And now we're going to talk about the family of the lineage of Seth. And Seth, if you remember, is the replacement for Abel. Uh, it said he, um, when Adam lived, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he called him Seth. So Seth became then the replacement for, Cain, for, uh, for Abel, whom Cain killed. And he was born when Adam was 130 years old. And he then becomes the lineage of the Semites, or the Semitic, you know, Semitic line, and that's through, uh, Jesus comes from the Semitic line. We'll talk more about that later. Adam came from the lineage of Seth, and Jesus from the lineage of Abraham. So Shem was also from the lineage of Seth. And Abraham was Semitic, and the Jews were Semitic, and that's where we get, have you heard that word, that terminology, the Semitics, okay, that's the Jews come from the lineage of Seth, therefore called, uh, uh, or, or, and, and Shem from Seth, so we call it the Semitic line. So there was Adam, and then Seth, and then Noah, and then Shem, and Abraham, and David, and then Jesus, leaving out a bunch, but you know, that's, that's kind of the, the big picture of it. And the promise was to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through his seed. Okay? So Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now remember, Abraham um, is, is at that point down in Ur of the Chaldeans, and then God calls him to, uh, to the land of Canaan. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we see then that these, 
the lineage of Seth then becomes the lineage of Abraham that becomes the lineage of, um, of Jesus. So in Luke chapter 3, if you want to turn in there to you, in your Bibles, um, and I'm just going to begin in verse 34, that's the whole genealogy. But it talks about the son of Jacob, son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, okay? So it's tracing then the lineage in Luke chapter 3, tracing the lineage of Jesus. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem. Okay, so there's Abraham, and then Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, so tracing back then that Jesus came from this lineage of Seth. And there is a contrast with then the lineage of Cain, um, who's talked about as a wicked person. And we don't know, uh, Chuck Missler, in, uh, listen to his tape on this particular, on chapter 5, and he gives an interesting concept, and I don't know if I buy it or not, I'm not sure whether he bought it or not, that Cain might have repented, we don't know. Um, but at the beginning, and certainly for a long time, he, Cain was lineage, Cain was wicked, his lineage was wicked. And um, one commentator says that there is not a juxtaposing of the wickedness of the lineage of Cain and that of Seth, okay? So he, he is pointing out that both the lineage of Seth and the lineage of Cain, of which we, we have both, that there were good and bad people in, in both of them. So it wasn't a pure mix. You know, sometimes we think, well, this lineage of Seth is all good people and the lineage of Cain was all bad people. Um, but that's not the way it was. There was a mix, as we, as we see in both lineages, and uh, so we, you know, we can't say because they're from this lineage of Seth. And then we look at Jesus' you know, lineage, and there are good people and bad people in it. And so it's not always that there are, um, you know. <clears throat> so what it's saying is this, that the, the lineage of faith, it doesn't mean that every person in that lineage is a good person. Um, as, we say, as we see, for example, in the, in the lineage of David and the kings that, cut, that flow after David. So, but the blessing in the, is, comes through Abraham then. And the formula we see in, then in, this, uh, in these verses, and let's start with verse 6, okay? And this is where we really get into the crux of this chapter, the <clears throat> who had whom. But what I want you to notice with this is the, there's a formula that's followed in each one of them. So let me give you the formula in, chapter, in verse 6. When Seth, Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. So they all start out their way. And when he had lived so many years, he became the father of. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years, just a young guy, and had other sons and daughters. And then so... <clears throat> We see then this formula, Seth lived 807 years. So there, how many years they lived, 
and then had other sons and daughters. And that's given in each one of them the same formula. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. So that same formula is used all the way through. Now, let's, let's look at this. When Enosh had lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan, and after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalel. After he became the father of Mahalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years and then he died. Okay, now, the reason that, you know, a lot of times we look at this and we say, well, you know, it's a lot of repetition in there. And, and uh, you know, why go through all that? Um, and I just remind you that the Bible um, in the, you know, in much of the Pentateuch, I believe, was orally transmitted. And because it was orally transmitted, you have these formulas and you can just, you know, put different numbers in it. And it was for the sake of memorization. So you could memorize it very easily. You know, you only have to remember a couple of figures for each one. And if you know the formula, you can get the rest of it. So the purpose of the genealogy in chapter five, 5 then is to show three things. First to show the Sethite lineage and the Imago Dei promises which God gave to mankind. So God gave promises to mankind that, and this comes through the lineage of Seth. So it's tracing then this lineage of Cheth, Seth uh, through and, you know, and then later through the, up, up until the time of Jesus. But it all comes to uh, Genesis 6, 5, and 6. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. <laughs> Doesn't get much worse than that, does it? The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So, you know, it's, it's showing both what that God is using this lineage, but also that men became increasingly wicked. And so we see then the injured heart of God at the sin of mankind. And so, you know, throughout this lineage then and throughout history, sin entered into the human race and it was all downhill from there. But it's the perpetuation of the divine plan in spite of the sin of man. That's the amazing thing, is that God preserves a remnant. God, you know, <clears throat> preserves a people who will eventually, we come to Jesus Christ, God preserves all that through this, you know, this history which is replete with good and bad people and good and bad events and so on. So it's tracing the devolution of the sin of man. And so we see from the time of Seth until the time of, um, of Noah then, we see 
mankind increasingly becoming more evil. But there's another issue that, you know, jumps out at us immediately when we read this genealogy, and that is that these people lived 900 and some years. Yeah, okay. And so what gives there? Why, you know, why did they live so long? So there's a number of possibilities. I'm going to list three at four of them. And first one is that it's just an exaggeration. Okay, I don't buy that because that doesn't, that doesn't but you'll hear that. Uh, that is, they're just exaggerated life, lifestyles, or life, life, um, lifespans, but I, don't, I won't buy that. But the second is that they used a different calculation for a year, okay? Some have said, well, maybe it's a month instead of, you know, a, that a year is actually a month. But if that's the case, then Enoch had Methuselah when he was five years old. So, so we're not going to buy that, okay? So that doesn't work either. Um, third possibility is that they are recording dynasties. So when they say that Mahala, uh, uh, Methuselah lived 969 years, that it was, it, was the, uh, it was the whole dynasty of Methuselah lived 969 years. Um, I don't particularly like that, uh, <coughs> that explanation, uh, but it's a possibility. But the one that, uh, that I would, I think, is we just have to live with is that they lived longer than we do. And so the question is, why did they live longer than we do? Um, and one explanation, and we'll talk more about in the next few weeks, um, is because the flood had not happened yet, they didn't age as quickly as we do. And one of the theories is that the, the earth was covered with a canopy and because of that canopy, the sun rays couldn't get through um, as, as quickly, and so men would live longer. Um, in, but in Genesis 9.28, it says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. So, so he lived 350 years after the flood. So that, you know, that, that, that's a difficult explanation. Uh, and another explanation is that there's, there wasn't as much pollution in the, green, green, in the gene pool as we have today. So that, you know, the genes weren't as polluted as they are uh, today, and so people would just live longer. The other one is that um, uh, this is an open genealogy, not a closed one, so there were lots of, you know, lots of generations. This one kind of goes with one of the others that, that there were lots of generations between um, these people that it talks about in there. So that doesn't quite answer either. Um, and then, um, really, when it comes down to what we can say is we don't know. <laughs> you know. I mean, we don't really understand why they lived 900 and some years. Uh, there are some explanations and some things we might guess at, but we really don't know why they, why they live so long. But as Christians and as those who believe in the inerrancy of God's word, we just say, okay, we don't understand exactly why it was that they lived that long, but we believe God's word and we believe that God's word is inerrant, and so we accept, uh, accept those long lives. Okay, beginning in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 90, 65 years, 
He became the father of Methuselah. That's what I was talking about. He, he would have been five years old if we calculate uh, uh, years as much shorter. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. And then this really interesting statement. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. <laughs> and then uh, verse, verse 25 through 27. Methuselah had lived 187 years. He became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years, had other sons and daughters. Notice the formula there. It's repeating. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. Okay? Um, so who was the oldest living person, person, oldest person in the Bible? Enoch. Enoch never died. <laughs> so, you know, if you take it that way. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> so there's two, two people that are singled out then in this list. Enoch, and this is interesting, he walked with God, and then he was taken up to be with the Lord. And we see the same thing in a, with Elijah in 2 Kings. Uh, Elijah was just taken up, and Elijah pleased God, and Enoch pleased God, and they were just taken from this earth. They were, you know, they're, they're still alive. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So isn't that incredible? So we see this, you know, devolution of man and the sin, and at the same time, we see that there's faithful Enoch who walked with God. And then, as I mentioned, Methuselah was the longest, actually the longest one who lived on this, 969 years, almost a 1,000 years. But there's an interesting thing, and Chuck Missler brought this up. Um, the name Methuselah means his death shall bring. You've heard that? You've, yes. Okay. Um, huh? Yeah. He died in the year that the flood came. Interesting, isn't it? And we'll get more into that in a bit. His life was a prophecy that the flood, that the flood would come at his death. That's what the prophecy meant. His death, death shall bring, his death shall bring the destruction of mankind. Even the date of the flood was predetermined by the Lord. Okay, going back then to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. Young guy, died at a young age. Probably got in a car accident or something. We don't know. But <laughs> he died at a young age. Okay. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay. And then that's where we'll pick up with it next time, is that then we see Noah and the, the ark and all of that. Now, the three sons of Noah, the name Noah meant rest or comfort. 
Shem means name or reputation or fame. Ham means hot. And Japheth means to make broad or may God enlarge him. And um, I don't think I have this in your in the notes there, in the outline. But if we follow, and this Chuck Missler brought this out, and it's really a fascinating thing. If we take this, the names of each one of the uh, people, the men who are listed here, and we look at the meaning in the Hebrew, okay? So I'm going to give those, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to read through the meaning and what it means, okay? So Adam means man. Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Kenan means sorrow, Mahalalel means the blessed God, the ale at the end, that's God, Jared means shall come down, Enoch means teaching, Methuselah means his death shall bring, Lamech means the despairing, Noah means comfort or rest. All right, now, you, you, you read down that list then, and here's what you get. Man is appointed mortal, but sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Isn't that incredible? You know, and, and, and so you say, well, God, you know, in the, in the naming, God through this whole list, God has his, his purposes accomplished, and we can see it just in the meaning of the names of these men. Now, let me read it again. Man is appointed mortal, but sorrow shall come. The blessed God shall come down. Who's that? Jesus. Teaching. His death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. So the whole gospel, the whole gospel story is told just in the names of these, of these uh, uh, in the lineage of Seth. So you put it all together. and pl God's plan of redemption was not a knee-jerk reaction to Adam's sin. God knew what he was doing all along. Isn't that incredible? God knows what he's doing. And in spite of man's sin, God has this incredible plan that he's putting together. Ephesians 4, 1 through 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So the, God's incredible plan is predestined, and we are predestined before the time of the, before time began, you have been chosen and predestined in God. You know, try that on for a while. <laughs> you know, try that on and, and you know that you're not an accident okay so I want to shift then and talk about this whole issue of the existence of evil and you any kind of conversation you have with people I, every time that I've talked to somebody about a relationship with Christ this comes up have you ever had that yeah, but what about evil? What about Hitler? What about all this, this stuff we see and the junk we see in the world? How can there be a good God if, if all kinds of evil happens on the earth? What's the explanation? Well, this is known 
the existence of evil is known as the Achilles heel of Christian theology. Okay? And for this part, I listened to a tape, uh, I've listened to a couple times, by R.C. Sproul. You know who R.C. Sproul is? Uh, Ligonier Ministries and all that. Okay. And R.C. Sproul addressed this issue uh, toward the end of his ministry. He's, he died in 19... No, two, 2000... Uh, anyway, 2017, I think he died. Um, but it, he said that this is the Achilles heel of Christian theology. It's the supreme vulnerability of the Christian faith. It's something that is really difficult for us to, to, to work with and to explain to other people. So I'm hoping we can give some answers, even though I'm not going to give a complete answer. Um, in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, there are some difficult issues that we deal with as Christians, but yet we're, pre- we're to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope within us. So that's what we're going to look at. Now, if you remember, Achilles in Greek mythology was the greatest hero of the Greek warriors in Homer's Iliad. And the story is that. Um, Achilles' mother dipped him in, a, in the um, river Styx when he was an infant, but she, could, she held him by his, by his heel, and so she dipped him in the water, and so he was ab- uh, invulnerable except for in that heel. Okay? And that's where we get the expression Achilles' heel. So, so Achilles' heel then means it's our place of vulnerability where we have difficulty as Christians. It's a difficult issue to handle. So, first of all, what is evil? Okay? Does evil exist? All right? Well, the interesting thing about evil is that it it is not. It is not anything. Evil is is the opposite of good. The only way we can really talk about evil, we can talk about the actions of evil and, you know, and how it affects people, but if you try to define it itself, what is evil, you're always going to end up saying, well, it's not. It's not that which is good. Yeah, it's the absent. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine called the nature of evil negatio and provatio. Negatio means it's the negation of something else, good, and provatio means that it is, it is lacking or deficient. The Westminster Catechism says, what, to the question, what is sin? It says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. But notice, it's only defined by, it's not, you know, it's not good and it's transgression of the law of God. So it's, it's going back to this whole idea It is nothing itself except in what it is not. So Augustine taught that the only way you can understand the existence of evil is in the backdrop of good. Only if good exists does evil point to the reality of good for the existence of God. Let me try it sometime. Try to define evil without saying it is not. 
<laughs> it is just, it, 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 it's difficult. So the unbeliever, the atheist, and the agnostic has to account both for the existence of evil, but the agnostic and the, and the atheist and the unbeliever has to account for the existence of good. Because you can't understand evil without saying that it is the opposite of good. So the real question is, why do good things happen to bad people? They'll ask that. Ask them when they, when they say, well, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Say, well, why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> they have just as much difficulty. The unbeliever, if he doesn't acknowledge the existence of absolute good and evil, has to come to the place of defining good and evil in terms of personal preferences. Okay? And if you, if you abandon the idea that there is an absolute good and an absolute evil, then the only way that you can, you know, you say, well, what is good and what is evil? Well, really comes down to, they're going to have to say, um, I just like better good things and I don't like bad things. Evil is the, the, the opposite of good. And they don't want to define what is good and evil. And so what we have in our, in our day is that tolerance becomes the highest virtue. If there's, if there's no absolute good and evil, then it's tolerance that we tolerate whatever there is. And that's really no explanation. So let's talk about the theological difficulty of the existence of evil. David Hume said, is the, put it this way, if God is not able to prevent evil, then he is not all-powerful. If he is not willing to prevent evil, then he is not good. If God is both willing and able to eliminate evil, as we say, we say God is omnipotent and God is good, don't we? If God is both willing and able to eliminate evil, then why does it still exist? Therefore, an all-powerful, all-good and loving God must not exist, the agnostic would say or the atheist would say. God can't exist because an all-powerful God would certainly want to eliminate all evil. Well... What about the violence and hatred and wars and rape? Most unbelievers really do believe that there is evil, but they don't believe that they are any part of those who practice evil. Most of the time, I find that. I mean, it, they'll, they'll say, well, yeah, you know, you, you get into a conversation and they'll say, well, you know, um, I, yes, I believe there's evil, and, you know, Hitler and Stalin and so on, and they'll name off these, you know, who were really evil, but they will not admit that evil resides in them. And the real issue is, is there sin in every human heart? Are we born in sin? Well, we reject the explanation that God is not able to eliminate evil. All right? Carte blanche. God is powerful enough that God could eliminate evil. But if that's so, then why, does he, why is he willing to allow evil? And that really is where the question comes down. Why does God allow evil? This issue is known, huh? Yeah. 
Yes, that's, that's, that's part of it. And we'll go into that in a moment. But this whole issue is what we call theodicy. And it's actually a whole separate branch of, uh, of theology. It's composed of two words, theos and dike, which means justice. So it's the realm of theology or philosophy devoted to the vindication of God's goodness and justice despite the existence of evil. So the Bible makes no attempt to justify God or his actions. That's what's interesting. It tells who God is and what he has done, but it doesn't try to reconcile apparent contradictions. And it seems like there is a contradiction in the Bible because an all-powerful and all-good God allows evil to exist in the universe. So what are some possible partial solutions to this whole issue? And the first one is just what uh, Linda just mentioned, is that men have been given free will. Okay. And I've, I've said this to a lot of people before. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a good explanation. It's not a complete explanation. And that to really love, we have to have the choice of loving or not loving, obeying or not obeying. Okay. So if, if we're given choice... And, man, and God gave man choice in the Garden of Eden, then there had to have been, um, he, there had to be a real choice of choosing that which is right and obeying God and not taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and obeying and taking only from the tree of the, did I say that right? Okay, uh, did I, anyway, <laughs> you get my point. If man is given free will, to love, then we have to, have, we have to have a choice, a genuine choice, and God wants us to love him freely, and so he's given us free will and free choice. And that has to include that we would not love him as much as we would love him, and that we would not obey him as much as we would obey him. Because he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So he wants us to love him but to do that, he had to give us free will. God did not create evil. That's important that we understand that. God did not create evil, but he created the possibility of evil by giving us freedom. Because true love cannot be forced, it has to be freely chosen. But here's the issue, and here's what it comes down to, and it's really, this is the difficult sticking point. That before a choice is made, there has to be some kind of disposition or inclination to make that choice. Where did that prior disposition or inclination come from? So when Eve, and we'll go back and read it, Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now the issue is, okay, Eve took of the, of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate it, which she was not supposed to do. But why did she do that? Why did, what, was, what was there in Eve's heart that she would choose to do that which is wrong? Hmm? 
Yeah, but why, what does that come from? That's the, that's the issue. Where does that come from? Why wouldn't Eve just, you know, when God said, don't choose from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why didn't, why didn't Eve just say, well, okay, I trust you. You know, why not? What is it, what was it in Eve that caused her to make the wrong choice? Independence. Independence from God, a desire to be independent from God. Yeah, a free will, a desire, you know. Um, but where did that come from? And, and, if, and if God wanted to make a perfect world, and if he's all good, and he's all powerful, then why didn't God make it so that we wouldn't choose the wouldn't choose evil. We wouldn't have that disposition to evil, that inclination to do the wrong thing. And it continues throughout the whole human race. Why? There's something within man that is a bent toward evil. Where did that come from? Why did creatures made in God's image have a disposition to sin? Some say that Satan coerced Adam and Eve into disobeying. But the scripture is clear, Adam and Eve freely chose to sin. And particularly Adam. You know, as we talked about earlier, Eve took of the, you know, Eve was deceived. It says Eve was deceived. But Adam wasn't deceived. We talked about that before. He freely chose, knowing the consequences, he freely chose to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, but where does rebellion come from? Why? Why does man have that? What is this within man that causes him to, to want independence from God and wants, you know, wants to be our own master of our own destiny? Where did that come from? Yeah, same spirit in Satan. But where did that come from? And why didn't God make Satan and Eve, and Adam, and you, and me, <laughs> so that we wouldn't have that disposition to evil. Yeah, he didn't want slaves. But why couldn't he? You know, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, if God is so intelligent, why didn't he create? Why did he create us so that we would have that kind of disposition to evil? Some say Eve fell through into sin through ignorance. But if Eve fell through ignorance, why is she culpable before God? God holds her responsible. And God doesn't hold us responsible for ignorance. Eve's mind, and furthermore, Eve's mind was not fallen at the time. When she fell into sin, when she took of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, her mind was not distorted and distorted. And, and, you know, all the horrible things that it says in Romans 1 about our minds after, because of sin, she didn't have that. So Sproul's answer to the question of theodicy is, um, he says this. There are going to be some unanswered questions. He says this. It is a sin to call good evil. And it is a sin to call evil good. And then he says this. Evil is not good, but it is good that there is evil. <laughs> okay, try that one on. <laughs> evil is not good, we know that, but it is good that there is evil. 
as we said before, God didn't create any evil, but he allowed, or actually, Sproul actually says, ordained evil to come into the world to accomplish his purposes. So, why does he do that then? Why did God allow or ordain evil come into the world to accomplish his purposes? Why did he do it that way? Well, again, we're not going to give a complete explanation, but just some, some thoughts here. First is that God brings good out of evil. That's who he is. Why did he allow for the existence of evil? He could have prevented Eve from taking the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he didn't. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God, if God brings good out of evil, then he must have authority over evil. Isn't that right? He has ultimate authority over evil. Unless he has authority over both good and evil, he couldn't keep the promise of bringing good out of evil. And so God brings good out of evil. And so what Satan intends then for evil, God turns that around and makes it, brings it good out of it. We see this in the story of Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph in Egypt, um, and Joseph, remember Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Um, he was, Joseph was the favored son of Jacob, and, and, and so Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. There were, there were 12 boys, and, and the 11 were jealous of, or envious of Joseph, and so they decided that they were going to do away with them. Well, uh, the 11 brothers are out with their sheep, and, and J- Jacob says, go out and find your brothers and, take a, you know, and, and see how they're doing and so on. Well, they see Joseph off in the distance, and the brothers say, okay, this is our chance, let's kill him. Well, <coughs> Reuben, the oldest, wants to protect wants to protect Joseph, and he intends that he's going to, um, you know, let, let's not kill him, he says, let's put him into a cistern. So they put him into a cistern, and then he intended to bring him and take him back to his father. Well, Judah says, let's not do that. There's a, there's a caravan coming, and Judah says, no, let's not kill, let's not, leave him in the cistern, let's sell him to these Ishmaelites. So that's what they do. And then, and then we know the whole story, Joseph in Egypt and all that kind of stuff. And then we come to Genesis 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, okay, now, this, now we pick up the story. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. He concealed his identity. He's speaking Egyptian with them. And he concealed his identity. He says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So God sent Joseph ahead, and Joseph had to go through all that horrible stuff in order to save the lives of the whole family. 
and many in Egypt. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me Pharaoh to, father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. So God uses, and the Bible is full of stories of God using, using evil to accomplish good. And that's what we see with Jesus. Jesus had a horrible death on the cross, and God used it for the salvation of mankind. So the first thing you have to say is that God brings good out of evil. And he knew that he would. Second thing is that we become stronger through the struggle with evil. You know, when you go to the gym, if you, if you go to the gym, <laughs> if you go to the gym, um, you do resistance training and you're, you're, you know, you're using weights that, that gradually build your muscles in the same kind of way we build spiritual muscles by the struggle with evil. So struggle is a good thing, even though it's not a pleasant thing. But it's useful in our spiritual maturity. Romans 8.28, we just, we just quoted. Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God uses the struggle with evil in our lives to mature us in the faith. And if we didn't have this, that we would be spiritually flabby. I mean, a basketball team, you know, we follow the, the Wildcats, went to a game yesterday. And um, a basketball team preseason. Everybody has all kinds of opinions on how good the team it is, whether they're going to be a great team or a mediocre team or a bad team or whatever. Well, they don't know until, they've, until they have had to struggle with other teams. And that's how we determine. That's how they build character. That's how they build skill is in the struggle. And we as believers, we build skill and spiritual fortitude by the struggle with evil. We see it with persecuted believers. And we were talking about this morning that, you know, persecuted believers. And we see incredible things coming out of places where there has been persecution. Why? Because they've had to struggle with evil. Not just theoretically, but in actuality. They've had to, they've had to wrestle with evil. So God makes us strong through suffering. Third thing is we do not need to fear evil if we entrust our way to the Lord. Psalm 91, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is your refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And it goes on and on. Okay? The idea is that if we put, if we make the most high our dwelling, if we trust in God, God will protect us, and keep us. And so in the midst of evil, God takes his chosen people and God you know, shepherds them to a place of safety and protects them and blesses them. 
Without evil, that would not happen. We would not depend upon God. We would not need to depend upon God if there weren't evil in the world. Fourth thing is, we know the future of evil. Even though we don't understand the origin of evil, we really can't understand the whole thing. We do know the future of evil. God will rid the universe of all physical, metaphysical, and moral evil. So even though there is evil, we know that God conquers evil in the end. Revelation 20, verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So, one of, so even though we, we, we can't really understand why God created man with a disposition to evil, we know that God conquers evil and that that's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus conquered evil at the cross. He faced it head on and God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that we can have victory in our own lives. So my conclusion is this. Given that mankind had fallen, the continued existence of evil is the very best way that God could display his power and character through the plan which he put into motion in the Garden of Eden. That there is no better way that God could have created what he wanted to create without allowing or ordaining that evil would be in the world. God will destroy evil, but not yet. God is glorified. Now listen to this, and this is really is the is where I'm coming, what I'm coming to. God is glorified not by eliminating evil or eliminating the struggle with evil, but by overcoming evil through the cross and the testimony of his people. So his ultimate glorification, the, old, the, the best way that God can be glorified, is not by saying, is by eliminating all evil, but by overcoming evil on the cross. And God gets ultimately the greatest glory through what Jesus did on the cross. And he also gets the greatest glory through the testimony of, those, of us as believers who have struggled with evil and overcome it in our lives. He would get the glory best through his master plan of demonstrating his love and justice through the death of his son on the cross. So I, I didn't give you really, you know, a full answer. There is no full answer. I mean, people... Throughout the history, you know, from the time that the Old Testament was written until today, people have tried to understand this, and we can't totally understand it. But what we can understand is that God is ultimately glorified the best way through allowing evil to exist and then conquering it on the, on the cross. Thank you. I'll get to heaven. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>
grandfather, what a truer statement could never be told. When we all see you, and when in that day all evil is gone, we will rejoice. But we rejoice in you and with you day by day as you use the challenges on this earth, the evil that exists, that you control. You keep your hand controlling every bit of it, Lord. It will never be out of your control. And so we can trust in you no matter what we face, and we can know, Lord Jesus, you are refining us day by day by day, using every circumstance that Satan would use for evil in our lives. You use it for good, and you, and you continue that blessed refining. And so we praise you and thank you for that, and we entrust ourselves into your hands in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Mm -hmm. 